Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17. Let's just read through the uh, verses 14 through 21. Hoping to actually get through the rest of the chapter today. I don't think it's um, uh, hard for us to do, but uh, let's just read that. And this is uh, immediately after the transfiguration, which we've been looking at for the last two weeks prior. But notice what it says here, that uh, after this, it says, And when they had, come, uh, they had come down from the mountain, the mountain of transfiguration, and when they had come to the multitude, which was waiting at the base of the mountain, or somewhere in that area in Galilee and Caesarea Philippi, more, more likely this was a, a, a Galilee at this time, that a man came to him, kneeling down to him, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. And then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, notice. And it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast him out, cast it out? And Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So Lord, we thank you for this passage and and Lord, for this uh, part of the scripture. And Lord, we pray that you would just guide and direct us and Lord, open our hearts and our eyes, Lord, to the reality, not only of, of faith, Lord, and the faith that you desire to give us, but Lord, also for the reality of spiritual warfare. And Lord, thank you that you are far above uh, it all, Lord, above the armies of angels, Jesus reigns. So, Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we read verses 14 through 27, or t- through 21, excuse me, uh, this passage comes chronologically immediately after what we had previously looked at, and obviously the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that often after a spiritual high of, or some great advancement for the kingdom of God, that there are immediate, immediately difficulties and challenges. Anybody notice that? Whenever there is something significant spiritually in your life, maybe you're riding a high, maybe you've been on a retreat for a few days and the Lord is speaking to you, you sense the peace of God, you have the inner you know, uh, understanding that God is with you, you sense his forgiveness, his love, all of that, and it overwhelms you. And you're on a spiritual high. You're on the mountaintop. But what we see here and what we just read is typical of the Christian life and for Christian ministry. Because Peter, James, and John, remember, they were chosen specifically out of the 12 disciples to be with the Lord at the Transfiguration. And this experience obviously was very supernatural. It had never occurred before. And they liked the experience, and they wanted it to continue. They, they didn't want to leave, but rather, remember, Peter wanted to build three houses up there, or three tents or tabernacles, one for Jesus and one for Moses and one for Elijah. But sooner or later, you have to come off the mountain and face reality. Isn't that true? You, can't, you know, as much as we'd like to stay on the mountain and, and in our fuzzy slippers in front of the fireplace, in our favorite chair with our favorite cup of coffee, at the favorite temperature with your Bible open to your favorite place. You know, we can't stay on those mountaintops forever. They're there to encourage us, and certainly the disciples needed encouragement, and they would certainly need encouragement after this event. 
because they were going to be facing, looking down the barrel of Jesus going to Jerusalem. And his face was set like flint to go to Jerusalem. No one could dissuade him or persuade him from not doing that. It was the very purpose for which he came into the world, to go and to take upon himself the sin of all of humanity and have it paid for once and for all on the cross. God the Father forsaking his son for a time and turning away and allowing his wrath to be poured out on him. And not just the physical crucifixion, as horrible as that was, but spiritually. Think of that. No one has ever done that before. No one has ever taken the sin of the world. I mean, think of the load that that is. Think of the weight that that is. No wonder Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, Lord, if there's any other way, and he knew that there was no other way. He said, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But he knew that that cup had to be drunk. The cup of God's wrath, it had to be taken upon himself. And do you think Jesus looked forward to it? Do you think he wanted it? In one sense, he did, because he, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. And he paid the price once and for all for you and I. But now they come off this mountain, and unfortunately, they can't stay there. We can't stay there. The disciples, they were aware of the kingdom of God because the prophets had spoken of it. But now Jesus gave them this vision of the kingdom, and, and, and specifically of the glorified Jesus Christ. And what was he doing but preparing them to minister the word of the kingdom to the world? He was preparing them now, and he was telling them in advance And it's true that there'll be much persecution and tribulation for the church before Jesus returns for his bride. And we're just getting a slow glimpse of it right now as the world is starting to uh, wake up to the spiritual battle. Anybody aware of this spiritual battle that's happening right now in the world? It is a battle between good and evil. It is a battle between two different worldviews. One worldview world that is very uh, given to us in the Word of God. And for, if you're a Christian, you have this worldview in mind. We know what's coming. God has told us in advance. We're seeing it ramping up. We see these things happening. And we're going to suffer persecution, folks. I hate to tell you, but there's going to be... Now, to what extent? I have no idea. We may not suffer like the first century church where they were actually hunted and killed. But even if so, are you you going to fall back from Christ if it got that bad in this country? Would you still love Christ with all of your heart and still continue to speak of him even if it cost you your life? We may never see that kind of brutality. Not in this country, maybe. It's happening over in Africa and in other parts of the world. It's literally happening as we speak. But here in America, we may not see it. We may get persecuted to a great deal, but it is coming, folks. Prepare yourself. Prepare yourself. Now is the time to get real in your relationship with Christ. If you're not already there, we need to get there. And how do you do that? You get on your knees and you pray. And you get into the word. You get into fellowship. You do like what we're doing now. And you do that at home. And you do that wherever. And you get grounded and rooted so that nothing can pluck you. Jesus said, once you're his, if you're you're a, a believer in Christ, he says, nothing in heaven above or in earth beneath can pluck you out of my hand. Nothing. The devil can't do it. The government can't do it. Your own heart can't do it. Nothing can do it. Your circumstances are doesn't matter. Nothing can pluck you out of his hand once you are his. Now, your emotions and your feelings may be all over the map, and that's okay, because you know what? We're human. But never forget this one thing, folks. As persecution ramps up, never forget that God is aware of what's happening. He's aware, he's aware of all of the human trafficking. He's aware of all of the, the young boys and girls who are being sexually molested. And the United States is the king of it all. Did you know that? The United States. Persecution is coming. We have to be ready. It's coming. Don't be frightened. We don't need to be frightened, but we have to be ready. 
Before Christ returns for his bride, there's certainly going to be persecution and tribulation. But even when the church is removed, then the tribulation, the great tribulation, is going to be horrible, and that's going to be unleashed upon the world. But we need to remember this as Christians, and and hear this, please, because many people today, as Christians, they think that it's just pie in the sky and that everything's going to be fine. Well, listen, before there is glorification, there has to be tribulation and persecution and death to self. We can't have the baby without the labor pains. Do you follow? There is glory coming, and it is greater than anything we can possibly imagine, but we're going to go through some bumps and bruises until we get there, folks. Some of you may not. The Lord may take you before then, meaning you may die of a natural death, physical death, and then you're in glory with the Lord. Or the Lord may rapture us today, and I hope he does. Right now would be a good time. I say that all the time, but you know what? I really mean it. Now would be good. I wish I had a rapture button, you know, a little red button up here. It's like, gone. All of us. I would love that. Wouldn't you love that? How would you feel about me having a button like that? Yeah. (laughs) Wise man. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Jesus, or I'm sorry, Paul speaking to Timothy, says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you don't desire to live godly, then you're probably going to go straight through. But if you desire to live godly, it's not going to be easy. And Paul, ministering to the churches in Asia Minor, he says in Acts 14, he says, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And so Peter, James, and John have just witnessed this supernatural event. Their faces, their hearts are full of excitement. Now they have to come down from the mountain and face the world and the devil. They have to come down from the mountaintop. You know what it's like, don't you? In a a different way, it's sort of like being on a very nice vacation in the Caribbean. You've been there for three weeks, you're all nice and tan, your belly is full of, you know, seafood and you're all rested, and you got salt, you know, deposits underneath your toenails because you've been in the ocean so much, and then you come back to Rochester in February... And you come back home after this wonderful vacation, find that your water heater blew up in the basement, water's been seeping out over the threshold of your house, creating an ice sculpture outside on your lawn, and then you get in your car and realize that your car doesn't turn over because the the cold weather zapped your battery. Sort of like that, kind of. You go from one place, and you're like, now you come down to reality. And what about our faith? The passage that we looked at and are looking at today is challenging the disciples, and it will also challenge us in our faith of God. But what does it tell us in Hebrews? It says that without faith it is impossible to please him. But he who comes to God must believe that he is, meaning to believe that he is God. You have to believe that, and that God, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And God has given us ample evidence of who he is and that we can trust him. Has he not? Hasn't he done that for the children of Israel and the Jews and for the Gentiles and the church? But it's up to us to pray and to be in fellowship with Christ, to abide in Christ and to step out in faith as the Lord leads us and then trust him. God would have us to walk by faith and not by sight. Amen. And that's where the rubber hits the road. Walking by faith and not by sight. God has given us two eyes to use. And yes, we do have to be aware. We have to watch what's around us. If you're stepping over, if you're walking toward a cliff, your eyes say there's about a 200-foot drop there. You're going to be in glory in just a few moments, which is not a bad idea. You just don't like the process. Amen? (laughs) But he's given us eyes to see. But he wants us more to walk by faith. Yes, use your eyes. He gave them to you. He gave you two of them, actually. One wasn't enough. He gave you two. But we need to walk by faith. Because what we see determines much of the time our response to those things. But sometimes faith will say, even though it doesn't make sense, I need you to do it. 
All the natural things aren't supporting it. Nobody's supporting you, not even the church, but I'm calling you to do this. And then it's up to you to step out in faith and do it because the Lord said so. And so faith. So that's what we're going to look at today. So let's look back at verse 14. So when they had come to the multitude, after coming off of the Mount of Transfiguration, a man came to him, kneeling down to him, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he, has, he often fail, falls into the fire and often into the water. So Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they come down from the mountain, from uh, possibly Mount Hermon, and they come to the multitude, and the other nine disciples are there. Remember, only three went up with him, Peter, James, and John. So now they come down into the valley, and there are the other nine disciples, and the uh, scribes and the, and the multitude, they're, they're ridiculing the, the other nine because they could not cast out a demon from the boy, even though... The disciples had done this before. God had sent them out two by two. It tells us in Matthew chapter 10 that Jesus sent out the 12. He sent them out two by two. And what did he tell them in verse 8? Heal the sick and cleanse the lepers and raise the dead. Cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So the man says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and into the water. Now, if you have a New King James Version Bible, uh, remember that its translation was published in 1982, and it uses this word epileptic here. And if you notice in the margin of your Bible, it may say something like moonstruck or lunatic. And if you have a King James Version Bible, it says lunatic. That's what it says. And it's a Greek word, and it's selenia zomei. That's a fancy word. I couldn't say that again, so I won't. But it literally means to be crazy, to be lunatic. So the King James Version says lunatic, but the New King James translators translated it ep, uh, epileptic, which is more common to us today when we look at the symptoms of this man. It looks like epilepsy, but the Greeks... They didn't use the word epilepsy because it wasn't even a known malady at that time. In 1982, when they translated this from the original, you know, the King James said lunatic, they say epileptic because it looks sort of like epilepsy. But let me suggest to you that it was more than just epilepsy. And the scripture tells us that. Some have thought that the effect of a full moon actually has an effect on people. And you may think that that's a little crazy, but I, I, I remember my mother, who many of you know is a retired uh, police officer from Lee County Sheriff's Department down in Florida. And she would often tell me when she was on patrol, uh, when, when she was in her patrolling days, she would tell me, wow, the, the crime is going crazy tonight, and it's a full moon. And, and it was a, a running kind of joke with all the police officers that whenever there's a full moon, there's an uptick in crime. And crazy people doing crazy things. And sure enough, it, it happened. Now, whether it's a solid fact, I have no idea. But today, when we think of the definition of epilepsy, it's a neurological disorder characterized by recurrent epileptic seizures. What is interesting is, is as we read this account in Matthew's Gospel, we are unaware of anything nefarious in this Gospel we're unaware of anything nefarious until we get to verse 18. And then we realize, okay, this is just not epilepsy. There's something else that caused this, that was the, the, the catalyst for it. And so notice in verse 15, uh, the, the father said, he often falls into the water and often into the, into the fire. We need to remember that when Satan is at work, his motive is to destroy. That is one of his names. In Revelation 9, one of his names, we believe, is Abaddon or destruction. It could be Satan himself. And even if it's just a very powerful demon, his, he's a destroyer. He is a murderer. He's a murderer. Jesus, in John chapter 8, verse, 4, uh, verse 44, he says that, that Satan was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources because he is a liar and the father of it. 
Satan is a murderer, and he doesn't care how he accomplishes his deed. He is bent on destroying lives and anything important to you and to God. His M.O. is destruction. In the parallel account of this passage in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 9, beginning in verse 17, it says that when one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. So this other gospel gets right to the point that this is not just some kind of epileptic seizure, which they really knew nothing about. Mark's gospel gets right to the point and tells us that he has a mute spirit, meaning it's a mute demonic spirit that has possessed this young boy. And wherever it seizes him, it says, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples so that they should cast it out, but they could not. Interesting. Whole different ballgame now. Now we're out of the medical field. <laughs> And we're looking at something completely bizarro, something completely abnormal, something spiritual. So verse 16, the man says, I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Notice the expectation on those who are Christ's. Notice the expectation of this man toward Jesus' disciples. Jesus wasn't there at the time because he was up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. So they came to, these men came to his disciples to cast the demons out. And this is challenging, isn't it? Because they, they had a right to expect certain things from the disciples. Because Jesus had given them the power to do these things. And it's challenging, isn't it? Because we as believers, we have a lot more power available to us than we think. And yet, I don't know if we really operate in it as much. I, I, and honestly, I don't know that I do either. But I want to challenge all of us to think about that. What, is, what does it tell us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4? He who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Meaning that if you're a believer, the Spirit of God in you is greater than he that is in the world. So greater in power, greater in authority. And so often, I don't walk in that authority I mean, I shouldn't walk around with some kind of bravado like, you know, it doesn't mean that. There, there's, a, there's a quiet, humble confidence in the power of God, and it doesn't have to show itself in some grandiose machismo kind of thing. And it oughtn't either. And yet oftentimes we don't seek, we don't ask, we don't knock. And let that challenge you a little bit. Because God has given us a lot more than what we're taking. May the Lord give us, the church, this unction from the Holy Spirit and give us the grace to have faith and total trust in Jesus Christ. Amen? In verse 17, And then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. Now, again, I'm relying on the other gospel accounts in Mark and Luke, but in Mark's gospel, at about this same time, it says this in Mark 9, chapter 20. It says that they brought him to Jesus, and when he saw him, immediately noticed the spirit convulsed him. So a person who is suffering from epilepsy doesn't have somebody convulsing him and doing these kinds of things. This is demonic in nature. And notice, the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground, and he wallowed, foaming at the mouth. Yes, it sounds like Linda Blair in The Exorcist, doesn't it? No doubt they got that aberration from the Bible. So he asked his father, uh, Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And, and often he, and the, the dad is saying, the demon has thrown him both into the fire. Notice the demon has thrown him into the fire and into the water. To what? To bless him? To baptize him? No, to destroy him, because that's all that Satan can do. But if you can do anything, the man says, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I love the honesty of that, don't you? 
You know, I might have been tempted to pump myself up and say, yes, I believe in you, God. I've seen you do all these things, and I believe in you. I might have been tempted to bow my chest and, you know, and try to impress the Son of God. He's, he's like, oh, my goodness. He was honest. And the Lord loves honesty. You can't hide anything from him. Where can I go from your spirit, David says? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I made my bed in the depths of hell, you're there as well. I can't go anywhere where you are not. So why try to fool him? Just be honest. He appreciates honesty. Otherwise, we self-deceive ourselves. We're the only ones who are deceived when we don't think that there's something wrong. Because God knows the truth. He knows things that we don't even understand or can't know. But notice how the Lord ministered to the father of the boy, drawing him out. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And even with the little faith that this man had, or whether he didn't, regardless, notice the Lord cast the demon out and healed his son. Notice the order. He cast the demon out, and then his son was healed. His son wasn't healed, and then the demon was cast out. No, the demon was the problem. He cast out the demon, and then he was healed. And I love how the Lord responded to him. Remember that the Lord loves people. And yes, he holds us, the church, because we know a lot. We've been given a lot. So there's, to whom much is given, much is required. But for the person who knows nothing, the average person on the street, remember that when you deal with them. They know nothing. And Jesus loves them. So let's be, let's be kind as much as we can with them. And be gentle, but tell them the truth. Isaiah 42 verse 3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. The man had just barely, who knows what he had, and Jesus says, If you, believe, if you can believe, you know, I can do all things. He goes, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. He wasn't even aware of what kind of faith he had. And Jesus didn't walk away from him and say, well, you don't have enough. See ya. I got other things to do. Got to go to Wegmans. Got to go to Aldi's. No, he had compassion on him and he touched his son. You see, because real biblical faith will change you. Real biblical faith, it's radical. It doesn't think too much about rationale. It doesn't think about physics. It doesn't think about what man can't accomplish. It is not concerned about the practical. It only sees what God can do. And that's what biblical faith is. James, the Lord's half-brother, said, Someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they tremble. But do you, not, do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect or mature. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So faith does. Biblical faith produces something. It causes us to get up off the couch. It causes us to put on our shoes. It causes us to get out, out of our comfort zone and to minister it causes us to get out there and not be afraid. Biblical faith trusts God for the output, even when everything in the natural doesn't look right. I've been uh, bewildered at times, and I'm sure you felt this way too. There's been times maybe when God is calling you to do something, and you step out in faith and you do it, and everything within you is screaming, don't go. You don't even feel good. You're, you're, you're nervous. There's something in you that just like, do not go, do not go, do not go. And you, 
And I would encourage you to fight through that sometimes, as often as you can. And, and then I was bewildered that even though I wasn't in the game, I was simply obedient at the right place at the right time, and only God knew. And then I opened my mouth and I spoke, and I saw wonderful things. And I'm like, oh my goodness. This really has nothing to do with me, does it? He's just calling me to be there. Open your mouth, Rob. I know you're not smiling because you're whatever. you got problems, your issues. Just open your mouth now. And then you do. And then you see the tears roll down somebody else's face and say, you know what? I prayed this morning that if God didn't do something and make himself real to me, I was going to kill myself. And you came today. Now you know why the devil was keeping you from it trying to keep you from it. So don't just think that, you know, the spiritual warfare stuff is very real. And the, 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 the enemy of our souls, he's the king of the flesh. He is the king of the flesh. He's the king of fear. And he will keep you and shackle you up and keep you in fear from doing the thing that God wants you to do. And who cares about what you feel about it? Who cares what you think about it? For heaven's sakes, just get up and be obedient to it. Just do it. <laughs> and then you'll find, oh my goodness, later, after the fact, you're going to be humbled. You're going to be blown away. And we should be. And then I realized, God, it really isn't about me, is it? And he's like, no, it's about me. Oh, that's right. It, it is about you. It's not about my feelings or how I feel or how comfortable I am. He's like, no, it's not about you at all. But isn't it a joy to serve Christ and to see the tears coming down from eyes when you minister to them? That, that to me is worth it. You can't, there, there's no, um, you, you can't pay somebody to feel that good. You can't pay some, nobody could pay me to get that same feeling of satisfaction when you know that God used you to touch somebody else. It's amazing. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's beautiful. And may God give us an even greater faith in these last days because I believe, folks, that we're going to need it as times get darker and darker. We're going to need that. So verse 17, remember what Jesus said. He says, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. Now this saying of Jesus seems, it seems to be addressed to the disciples. Now there's conjecture here, and it could be the multitude that he's speaking with. But I say this because of what Jesus is going to say to them in verse 20. And we'll get there, and it'll make sense. But notice the father of the boy didn't know much, but he was practically begging the Lord to help him. And, and yet the disciples who had tasted and seen that the Lord is good, they've actually tasted and, and witnessed the miracles. God held them more accountable than this man. The man didn't require great faith and God did amazing things. But God required something more of his disciples because to whom much is given... Much is required. But notice in verse 18, and Jesus rebuked the demon. This is the first time, other than the other gospel accounts, this is the first time in Matthew where we were like, oh wow, there's something nefarious happening here. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Notice that after the demon was cast out, he was made whole. And the demon who had possessed this boy was causing the condition of seizures and the foaming at the mouth. Because the devil is a destroyer and a murderer, he is greatly responsible for much sickness and death. And we have to be really careful not to assume that epilepsy is brought about by demon possession. I have to say that. Because some of you are epileptic. I know there's a few people in our fellowship who have seizures from time and time again, and you're a believer in Christ. So just because you may be epileptic does not mean in any way, shape, or form that you are somehow possessed of the devil. Nope, not true. In fact, if you're a child of God, it can't happen. As a child of God, you cannot be possessed by one greater because Jesus, he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. So no one's going to kick him off the mountain of your heart. He's not big enough. Can I get a hallelujah? Yes. Every man in the room, hallelujah. Yes. Can't kick my king. Not going to happen. He's going to put a big book print right on your face. 
I don't mean that because, I mean, in a sense, I mean, God loves people. But in the tribulation period, yes, there's going to be a boot in their face. More like a sword. But again, many people are epileptic or severely ill, and they're not possessed of, of, de- of, of the devil. But Satan is often the instigator behind severe sickness. And it, it doesn't necessarily mean possession, but rather just affliction. Um, you don't have to go there, because for the sake of time, I'm just going to read it. But in Job chapter 2, it gives us an insight into what happens in the spiritual realm concerning sickness, death, and calamity. But we need to remember that Satan is not free to just destroy as he wills. Everything Satan does... Is is only permitted by the Lord according to God's will and his purposes, which indeed are mysterious to us most of the time. Can anyone say amen to that? We don't understand sometimes why he allowed this to happen in my life today. I thought everything was going well. I thought I was doing well, Lord. I thought I was one of yours. Then why did you allow this to happen? He's like, Rob, you have no idea what I, what I have to do in you. You think you're okay, but I got something to do in you. And by the way, everyone's going to be watching it while I'm doing it in you, and they are going to be blown away. Are you willing to be the clay on the potter's wheel, Mr. Kellogg? No. I'm not, Lord. Okay, well, I'm glad you're honest, but you're going on it anyway. But notice what happens in Job chapter 2. Let me read this. And, and, and this is scripture. Okay? It says again, and, and again, the, you can read chapter 1. We're going to get right to the point here in chapter 2. Again, there was a day, Job chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also. Remember, this is in heaven. Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on all the earth, a blameless man, an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without a cause. So Satan answered and said, skin for skin, yes. All that a man has, he will give for his own life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand. But spare his life. You can afflict him. I'm going to allow you to afflict him, but you cannot go any further. I will not allow it. I love that. See, we don't know the conversations that are happening up there. Because I believe Satan is still approaching the throne of God. Can I mess with Rob? Not today. Can I mess with him next week? I'll think about it. God doesn't even have to think about it, but he knows what he wants to accomplish in my He knows what I have to go through to bring me to an end of myself. And it's not just about me either. There are other people watching. Oh, you're a big Christian. Everything is, you know, you're worshiping the Lord and everything's great. Now they see you not doing so great and they still see you worshiping. I would say that that's a witness, wouldn't you? So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself when he sat in the midst of the ashes. And then his wife came to him and said, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Thank you, honey. She's such a Proverbs 31 woman. Always making bread and darning my socks in the night when no one's there and, you know, cooking me dinners and, you know, all this stuff and having my favorite tea and my slippers by the fire, yes, with my pipe. Curse God and die. So sickness or disease is not always the result of sin. God says he was an upright man. In John chapter 9, verse 3, remember there was a man who was born blind and his disciples came and says, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents have sinned. I mean, they were sinners, but it wasn't because he wasn't born blind because he was a sinner, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Oh, that's a whole different matter, isn't it? Yeah. A very different matter. 
And sometimes sickness or disease is the result of someone's sinful choices. In John chapter 4, there was a man whom Jesus healed at the pool of Bethesda who had been crippled for 38 years. And what did Jesus tell him? It says in verse 14, Afterward, Jesus found the man after he had healed him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a greater thing, a worse thing, come upon you. The implication is that what he was, his sin was actually causing his sickness, his, his malady. And God alone knows these intimate details, right? On why he permits certain things for some and not for others. We simply don't know, nor should we claim to know because we don't. We need to let the judge of the earth be the judge of the whole earth, including us. So verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said to him, why could we not cast it out? Mark's gospel tells us in uh, chapter 9, verse 28, that they were at Peter's house now in Capernaum. And that's where the, uh, Peter asked the question. And so Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So faith, or the opposite of faith, is what? It's unbelief. It's unbelief. And what does Hebrews tell us? That faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. Isn't that crazy? It's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence. Normally, when you have evidence, you have something physical to look at. Well, faith is a lot like that. It's almost like you have physical evidence. You don't need the physical evidence, but it's like it because you see it in your heart. You know it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. Of things not seen. But unbelief is a sin because God has shown himself to be faithful time and time again, hasn't he? In the Old Testament, remember the children of uh, Israel had sent 12 spies into the land of Canaan and only two came back with a good report and the other 10 came back and discouraged the people from entering into the land that God had promised to give them. And Israel had thought to stone Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful witnesses. And the Lord finally speaks to Moses in Numbers 14, beginning in verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with this evil generation who complain against me? Does it sound a lot like what Jesus just said? How long shall I bear with you? How long? And God the Father spoke to Moses the same thing against Israel. I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as, I, as you have spoken in my hearing, so will I do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. And all of you who are numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore to make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring them in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be consumed and they shall die. So that sounds kind of harsh. Well, the author of Hebrews tells us, and let me just go down to verse 16. The author of Hebrews says, For who, having heard, rebelled? Speaking of this incident that we just read. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of 
unbelief. Unbelief. So is faith, is it a big deal? It is. Are we believing in God or are we unbelieving? Are, do, do we lack faith in God? There's nothing more he could say or do. He's done it all for us. He loves you. He proved it. He loves me, and I, I still wonder why sometimes. I'm like, Lord, I, I got such a rebelliousness in my heart. So even still, and, and here I am standing in front of your people, and there's still rebellion in my heart. And I know the Lord is working in me. He's conforming me to his image. He's changing me as he's changing you. But notice that even though the disciples had healed the sick and drove out demons, at this time their faith was wavering. Why couldn't they do it? And Jesus responded, O faithless and perverse generation. And see, this is why we need to continue to abide in Jesus and not just rest on the laurels of yesterday's victory or last year's grace that God gave us. Don't rest in anything. Keep your focus current now on Christ. Don't think about your past experiences and, and think, well, I can coast now. No, you can't coast. There's no time for coasting. You can never coast in the kingdom of God. You have to stay in the game. That's why the word, Jesus says, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. We need to stay in the game. We need to stay in the lane. We need to stay on that old path that Jeremiah spoke of. Not the new stuff that's every, you know, all around us. Oh, there's a new thing, new move of God happening in Toronto and oh, wherever. Hey, listen, you stay in the old paths. There is safety there. And God is there. He's not out on the fringe where people are doing aberrant things. Let's be like the Apostle Paul who said in Philippians, Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, I forget those things which are behind and I reach forward to the things which are ahead and I press forward for the prize, the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we need to do. Notice in verse 20, he says, if you have faith as a mustard seed. We know this, that the mustard seed is one of the smallest of the seeds. So it doesn't require great faith to accomplish God's purposes. Moses was simply told to stretch out his rod over the Red Sea. <laughs> and God told him to do it. And so what does he do? Puts out the rod. And I'm sure as he's holding out the rod, his jaw is dropping because he's watching the Lord do this thing and you're like, <laughs> just put out your rod. Very simple. Just put it out. Okay, Lord, I'll do it. Verse 21, however, notice what Jesus says, however, this kind, this demon that's in this young man this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. The kind here, this word is the Greek word genos. It's, it's where we get kin or offspring. This kind, yes, Satan has a brood around him. They used to be angels that served God, but they fell and they followed Satan. And now they are malevolent beings. In the universe. Some Greek manuscripts actually omit verse 21, but the fact is, is that it is in many of the manuscripts, and it gives us a glimpse of the unseen or spiritual realm. And by this statement that we just read, it seems very clear that there are demons of differing power and rank, and this is also true concerning the angels of God. I want to read to you something, and perhaps you can write it in your Bibles in, around verse 21 here. Um, but uh, in Daniel chapter 10, I want to read something to you that will hopefully um, prove this, that there are differing powers of angels, not only God's angels, but also demons. They're not all the same. Some are stronger in power than others. But notice in Daniel, let me just read the first 13 verses. This is, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message, and he had understanding of the vision. 
In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks, so 21 days. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till the three weeks were fulfilled. Now on the 24th day of the first month, I was beside the the great river, that is the Tigris, and I lifted my eyes and I looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with gold of Euphaz, his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words was like a voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision and no strength remained in me for my vigor was turned to frailty in me and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words and while I heard the sound of his words I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. And that's a pretty good posture when you're in the presence of holiness. His face on the ground. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I now have been sent to you. And while I was speaking this word, and while he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. And then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And let me go on here. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, he came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Do you see? There was one guy, one angel, who was sent to withstand, or or sent to Daniel, but the prince of the power of Persia, some demon, was keeping him from ministering to Daniel. So there is a different power here, a different stratum of power of deity, or not deity, but power of, uh, of these demons. And it took Michael, the archangel, Jude tells us that, It took an archangel, Michael, to come and set him free. A stronger angel than the one who was sent to Daniel. And do you think God knew that? And by the way, did you know that Daniel was praying and fasting for 21 days while that battle was happening? He had no idea. He had no idea. And perhaps because of his prayer, God says, okay, I'm going to send somebody to help you. Michael? Get the bat. (laughs) And he came. And he came. So the prince of Persia, who no doubt was a demonic being, withstood the angel of God, who evidently was not equally matched with the demon over Persia. But this angel held up Michael. Or, I'm sorry, this angel was held up until Michael came. In Revelation 19, it also speaks of another demonic being, which may be Satan or maybe one of his more powerful spirits. It speaks of this uh, time in Revelation 9 uh, of locusts or demons that are going to be unleashed upon the earth during the Great Tribulation period. And it says in verse 10 of Revelation 9 that they had tails like scorpions and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months and they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek his name Apollyon, which means destroyer. So there is a hierarchy of power in the angelic realm. And there are ranks and differing powers of angelic beings, both good and evil. We know in Ephesians, what does it tell us? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities. That's what we're wrestling against. That's why everything that we're seeing in the world is a result of a spiritual reality. The deception that is over our country right now with our our government doing it and the media assisting them and all of these other things, all of this demonic delusion that's happening right now, that's a spiritual thing that's happening, folks. It's a spiritual thing. And you can't fight this battle with guns and knives. You see it on the streets. They try to, but it's futile. 
But what we can do is pray. Will we? Will we pray? Because that's how the battle gets won. And Paul goes on and he talks about the armor of God. And I won't go that in here for the sake of time. But he says, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So how important is prayer and fasting? I would say it's important. In fact, it seems that this demon is not going to come out of this child except for through prayer and fasting. Now Jesus, the Son of God, was able to deliver this man, this young boy. But this kind, this powerful demon that's got a hold of this young boy, you can't just, you know, put the rosary beads around his neck. You're going to have to pray, and you're going to have to fast, because this one's going to kick you. It's not going to be easy. You're not just going to be able to talk about the blood of Christ over it. He says, that that's a good thing to do, but there's, there's more involved here, and you don't know it, but I know that, Jesus says. So you do what you got to do. Is there somebody in your life that is under the bondage of Satan? Maybe you're under the bondage of Satan, Maybe there's some kind of habitual thing in your life. Have you considered praying and fasting? Really praying and really fasting for a handful of days. I would encourage you to read. We don't have time to go there because my time is up. But I would encourage you to read Isaiah chapter 58. It talks about what a real fast is. Most of us think, well, I, I'm going to fast because I need to lose 10 pounds. Well, that's not really fasting. Well, I need to fast, and, and, and I'm going to do it so God will do this. No, you don't fast to twist God's arm to get something done. What does it tell us? Actually, I've got to read this one part, and this is where we're going to have to stop. I have to read this. <laughs> Isaiah 58. What did he say? Is this not the fast that I have chosen? And this is Isaiah 58, verse 6. And I would encourage you to read the whole chapter. I'm just getting to the point here. Verse 6, Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the heavy burdens? To let the oppressed go free? And that you break every yoke? Is, not, is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out when you see the naked that you cover him? And not hide yourself from your own flesh? And he goes on, because people were thinking, well, if I'm going to fast, I've got to make sure I look miserable. I've got to you know, afflict myself. You know, <laughs> I'm so hungry. Don't eat the Philly cheesesteak in front of me. I'm so hungry. And you, know, you walk around, and you're just like, <laughs> I'm fasting today. Don't talk to me. You know, and you, you have this grimace face, and everyone, wow, he's fasting. He's a holy dude. She's a holy gal. No, Jesus says, hey, don't let anybody know that you're fasting. Don't make a big deal out of it. But why do you do it? To twist God's arm? Well, if I deny myself, God, you have to do this, what I'm asking. Like my genie in the lamp, God says, it's not going to work. No, is there something binding you? Is there something that's on your heart? Then pray and fast. Because here is why we do it. It's to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the head, not to put one on you but to release it. <laughs> to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke, you know, the yoke of bondage, whatever it is. Are you hooked on pot? It's legal. It's okay now, right? It's okay with God, right? No, it's not. New York says it's okay, but God says it's not okay. So don't play games with God. Are you hooked on pot? Then maybe you need to fast and pray and have him deliver you from that bondage because that's exactly what it is. That's why there's such a prohibition against those things that are going to alter your sense of your mind. Spiritually, they're going to alter you. God says, stay away from that. Okay, by faith, I'm going to do that. I'm going to stay away from that. Good boy. <laughs> Good girl. <laughs> Must stay away from those things that God has said. 
However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And I almost wonder if the Lord said, you know what, I'm going to give you guys three days. Hmm. He could have if he wanted to. But he had compassion on this boy who had been tormented since he was very young. He didn't want to wait another second. But he could have told his disciples, I want you guys to pray and fast for three days. And then you come back and you do it. He could have done that, and it would have done. Let's stand together. I really wanted to finish the chapter, but that's okay. I, I think that, um, you know, when we look at this, what we just read today, 14 through 21, there's a lot here. I think the two themes that we can really draw away from is spiritual warfare, that there is a battle in the heavens, and there's a battle all around us that we can't see, an invisible war. That's exactly what it is. Daniel 10 proved that to us. Read it again in context. But it's a spiritual battle. And we know that we, we can't battle it with tools that we have available today. And see, this is where I think that we as the church, all, all over this country, all over the world, if we would really get serious, and, and again, I don't want to browbeat you folks, and, I, you know, and some of you are, we're all, maybe you're all doing this, okay? But I, but I have to say it because there's people, probably myself, that don't pray quite enough. And maybe I need to hear that. So I'm not trying to browbeat anybody, but it's, it's good for you to pray. And especially as we see things the way they're going, we need to engage. And we can't do it by guns and tanks. Can you, and I just got to say this and then we'll pray because this astounded me. And I believe, you remember back, when was it? Uh, I forget the exact date, but it was last year, was it? When Roe v. Wade was overturned on a federal level? That was a big deal. Do you know how many people, how many Christians have been praying for, since 1950, they've been praying for that to be overturned on a federal level? They can still do it on the state level if they choose so why all the noise? I don't know. But anyway, that was a big deal. That was a huge, huge spiritual battle. Do you know there was some big fat demon sitting right on top of that thing, not wanting it to be uncovered and, and, take, and, and repealed? Yes, some big fat demon. <laughs> Didn't want that to be overturned. And in the, one of the darkest times of American history, I'm just going to speak, this is my opinion, one of the darkest times in American history, God says, you know what? I'm going to do it right now. Right now, when it seems impossible, and the church is frustrated, they're angry, they're, they, you know, everything is going far left and everything else, he's going, I'm going, to, I'm going to put this little diamond in the middle of this darkness, and I'm going to lift it right up. And he did it. Miracle of miracles, wonder of wonders. Wouldn't you agree? And he did it. And he answered the prayers of millions, millions, millions of people. Millions of prayers. It all came to fruition in that moment. And do you think there was a, a battle? A spiritual battle? Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine the battle in the Supreme Court chambers of those nine individuals? as they are mulling this stuff over and talking about it and the spiritual battle that was happening right there. And God was victorious over them. And he brought it to pass. Father, we thank you that, Lord, you hear prayer, that you hear the cries of your people. We're thankful, Lord, that you haven't turned a blind eye to us. Lord, we know things are difficult. And Lord, we don't want to focus on those things. I mean, they're very real and we see them. But, 
Lord, we really want more than anything just to forget about that stuff. Me personally, Lord, I, I, I confess to you, I'm, I got too much news in my head. I'm aware of too many things, Lord. I need you more than anything, and I need more of that of your peace and your comfort and your grace working in in my life. And Lord, if there's anyone here who feels the same, Lord, do the same in them and help us to leave this place today changed and changing to no longer be a slave to that stuff, but rather be a bondservant to you. Lord, we want to serve you. So Lord, I pray that you'd bless my brothers, my sisters, my friends. Lord, would you cover us all today just in your Holy Spirit. Blanket us with your love right now. Just cover us and heal our diseases, Lord. Heal our hearts and our, our, our hearts and our hurts and the things that have happened, the things that we've said, the things that we've done. Lord, would you please forgive and heal and cleanse and revive, restore, renew, 